For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes... With the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. And welcome back, Wendy Mitchell. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to be back. It's positively minutes since yes. we finished the first podcast. Uh, this is the second of two podcasts I've, I've, uh, I'll, be, I'll, have been, I'll have done with, uh, with Wendy. Um the first one was a very sort of was a was a general overview about the sort of need to think about film festivals and strategies and where there might be or might not be help and the like. So if you've not listened to that already, then maybe before this one you might want to go back and go over that one first. This one we might get into a bit more specifics about about the filmmaker and film festivals. Maybe to mention with this one, I as I mentioned, I used to be the editor of Screen International. Sure. Started out there as a reporter, uh 14 years ago or something. Blimey. Still a contributing editor there. Um, but in the past, I've worked at IndieWire. I've written for places like Variety, uh, the Wall Street Journal on more of a business side, but also more on the consumer side at Entertainment Weekly. So, um, you know, anything from sort of local newspapers up to big, hmm. you know, consumer-facing brands, but write mostly for the, the trade press now. So in just thinking of that, that sort of sort of summary of your, of your experience. So, what would you say in that in those sort of let's take the fourteen years? What what do you see as being the sort of biggest change in terms of how the press and film films get on? The biggest change is you know obviously the internet existed those fourteen years ago. It did indeed. We had the you know ScreenDaily dot com already existed, um, but there wasn't this frenzy about breaking news and it's your exclusive for five minutes and then it's tweeted and um it's just gone crazy yeah it's just like it people seem to think it does matter if this organization has the story literally five ten minutes before somebody else so you're saying like variety hollowed reporter and screen and deadline and yeah. deadline are acting like reuters oh yeah yeah <laughs> they would just be like you know this is who has it first is so you know and i think you know, overall, that sort of hurts the landscape because if you're rushing to get something first all the time, maybe you don't have time to do the analysis that I think is mm. is better. But yeah, it's and just also breaking news alerts coming in every five minutes mm. in your inbox, and 
Twitter going mad. And yeah, is, that's changed a lot in those years. And do you think, I mean, if there's not enough time to analyze it, does that, is, is, is the suggestion there that maybe there's not as much news as we'd like to have, but we have to keep putting news out? Or is there a lot of news? There's a lot of news. Um, you know, there's no shortage of stuff for, say, screen or variety mm. to write about each day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, most of that's very interesting. But, you know, I think, I mean, it's the same with news in general. You know, look at newspapers. Budgets are declining. Mm. Um, yeah, people are being squeezed or trying mm. to do, you're not just the news reporter now. Maybe you're also doing this blog and this podcast and this and that. Um yeah, I sound like I'm talking about the good old days when you could have a three martini lunch uh, from the newsroom. That's I was that never was part. Wasn't it, yeah, sure. I was. I was never really part of that. But it, <laughs> things were a bit. Yeah, it feels like now if you don't have a story up within ten minutes, you know why bother? And that's it's How's hard. That, There's a uh, looking grind. back over this year. I mean, we're, we're talking at the end of November here. Um, is can you recall a story about a film that broke a film? As it were, has there been that kind of has there been that kind of phenomena this year where where the press coverage of something we weren't that aware of has has landed the film sort of plum center? Um, you know, I I'm not sure if it's like n- news stories, but you know, I think reviews mm. can do that. Um, you know, I'd be curious. Uh, was it Neon and Cam that bought Border? Mm-hmm. I'd be curious if they waited to read those reviews before they sign the deal because the reviews were great people love this film or maybe they just knew they love the film you know it, it could be that but i think yeah people are reading reviews especially you know and in terms of an acquisition mm. you know do you think this film is going to work with an audience people are i think read a lot of those trade reviews because yeah, I, think, I, I think two two and they're both musically based films you had the the, the showman the like like Oh, the greatest showman. Greatest showman, yeah. which got absolutely kicked in the pants. Yeah, and then it's went critic on, proof, though. Isn't and it? then went on to go bananas, and then Bohemian Rhapsody more recently. Mm. Again, the critics were like, "No, no, 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 no," and the public went, "No, we don't care what you think. Yeah, we want to <laughs> sing went, yes. Killer Queen." Yes. So, with that in mind, <laughs> um, what does what does a? I mean, we're, t- they're talk- we're talking about two big releases there, which mm. had a lot of sort of lead time in terms mm. of their release anyway and, and obviously recognisable stars um, in, in, at the fore. But what, what, what does a filmmaker need to think about in terms of press? Um, is, is the development news story the we've got that cast member, we've got this finance in place? Does that, is that an important story they need to tell or is it just worry about making the film and get the film out there? Oh, well, I think if you're the director, maybe you don't worry so much about those stories. But I think if you're the producer, mm-hmm. certainly announcing this film's going to be made, here's some of the, you know, that can be leveraged to get more finance, basically. Okay. We, as trade journalists especially, know that, you know, some of this news is being given to us so that somebody can then go close a deal or get some buzz and can about their film because it's been written about in the trades that day. Okay. And, and that's fine. It's a great news story for us, you know, no matter what is going to happen on the back of it. But, yeah. you know, and it also makes the trades really still important and relevant that people need to know this information, who's buzzing about what, well, yeah, what's the big new mm. project coming to market. Um, but for, you know, a director... Yeah, I would say most of the time you should be worrying about making the best film you can make and let somebody else do the the press for you until that film is finished. Mm. You know, um, have your 
producer sort of lead on that or if you've got a distributor or a sales company they'll help with that um but yeah director doesn't need to be like emailing the journalists directly should should i be my own publicist um be careful sometimes yes it's it's a minefield what you can get wrong you know if you announce your film and it's titled barking dog and it's you say it's a romantic comedy about a dog and a cat um once you put that out there that's out there forever right okay um you can never then say if if the film is finished and you change the title or you say oh it's it's about two cats now well it says here on the internet in these five stories that it's about a dog and a cat so which is it you know, so you have to be really careful with what information you put out that it's correct and it's going to stay correct. Mm. And also you're happy. Um, I remember I got a call when we need to talk about Kevin was in Cannes and somebody along the team was like, I can't believe you said this is about in print, you know, this is about a school shooting. And they said, we're really not messaging that. It's about this and this. And I, while they were sort of screaming at me on the phone, I pulled up the sales company's website mm. and the synopsis on the sales company said it's about school shooting you know so it's the team has to sort of coordinate and this is when a publicist can help everybody connect on the same page with the same language and also the publicists they're good know the journalists yeah because if you're a producer maybe you know a few journalists and it's great to be in touch feel free to talk to them they're normal people you know, let them know are if you're... Ta- well, some some, some <laughs> are. <laughs> let them know if something's off the record, of course, you know. Um, but, yeah, feel free to have a conversation. But I think, in general, a publicist is going to know the landscape. They're going to know who moved from this newspaper to that magazine mm. last week. They're going to know who loves romantic comedies about cats. Mm. Wendy Mitchell. Um, they're going to know... So definitely cats, not cat and dog. Well, both, both. <laughs> Feline and canine friendly here. Um, but yeah, they're going to know who's into who's going to be at Fright Fest. They're going to know all this. And, you know, journalists, some journalists listen more to publicists than others. But especially if you have, there's a, you know, some really great publicists out there who really know the industry, really know films. And you also know they're not going to take on a film they don't like. So if they're calling you to say, like, I think you might really like this one, or mm. I really loved it, you trust them. And it's like another sort of tastemaker to sort of, no, I totally agree. I think that there's a lot of emails that I receive and they're from unknown sources. And while it may be a great email, I might never look at it. Yeah. Not because I'm being rude, because I don't know who they are yeah. and why they've emailed me. Whereas if X from Premier or Y from Fetch yeah. email me, then I kind of know what I'm getting into. Yeah. Especially if they email you mm. and say, Stuart, this would be a great person for yeah. the podcast. Or, you know, if it's not even just a mass mailing. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for a lot of publicists. There are some publicists, I mean, there's, you know, one person, I'm not going to name names, who I get maybe three or four press releases a day about different films. This person is just taking on anything that will pay them money. They clearly don't care about all of yeah. these films. And yeah. that exa- makes me actually, it's sort of the reverse. It's like if I know this person is repping one of those films, I assume it's bad. Yeah, no, so I mean, I, I've, I've not experienced that to that level, but I, I, I'm familiar with that operation. It's yeah. like I have, a ma- I have an email list of journalists, so therefore you pay me 200, 300 pounds and, and I'll I send, send them it. an email, yeah. which is not. 
publicizing a film, is it? No. So I think, you know, when you're if you are looking to hire a publicist, there are some that'll work for pretty cheap rates if you don't have a lot of money mm. and um but you know, find out how many other films they're working that month. That when week. I pu- out of interest, the publicists that you've that you've spoken mm. to, do they do they work on a basis of here's a film in the early part of its life? We're not talking about release dates now, we're talking about mm. maybe it's going out on the festival circuit, sort of continuing our conversation from the first podcast. And you want to get reviews and you will maybe want to get an interview with the director or something. Are they likely to get on board? They go, you know what, this film could be a, a hit. So I'd rather be, I can see I can earn money off this film later. Do they, do they, are they pragmatic in that sense? In the sense that they'll get in early and lend their expertise with a view that they. Most of them, I think the usual model is they're going to get a flat fee. Okay. So if the film is a huge hit. They sort of get a bit of shine off of that. Oh, remember she worked on that amazing hit. Okay. But no, I don't think they get more money out of it if they suddenly have a hundred mm. articles. Um, but of course, it's also you know, a lot of times they really believe in the filmmakers they're working with, so they mm. might work on a sort of smaller first feature in the hopes that that filmmaker will come back to them with the bigger films. Yeah, later. that's kind of what. Yeah, that, I guess yeah. that's the logic I was thinking. Yeah. So. Um, it begs, it begs the question then, what material does, oh. does, a, does a journalist and the publicist require? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked because... I did enjoy your PowerPoint slide on oh, this section. You. Yeah, I... <laughs> you know, we say it till we're blue in the face. Um, we're in a visual industry, you may have noticed. Yeah. Um, the first and most important thing you've got to have are great stills from your film. And those are shot during production. Those are not screen grabs made in post or a portrait made after the film is in post. Um, you know, some sales companies, before you can sign a deal with them, will require you to have maybe 50 or 70 stills so it, that you so have to deliver to them before they'll take your film on. So and yet some people have two stills of their film. And, yeah. Get out of town, really? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. People get... They might not use all those 70, but you need to have thought about that. No, no. And you need to think about it at script stage. Go through, mark up the script. Which scenes do you want photos of or which day, then you sort of translate which days of their shoot. Nobody can probably afford a, you know, photographer on set every day. You don't need it. Yeah. Pick three or four key days. So when we set the Viking ship on fire, we want the stills of that, don't we? Yes. We don't want the still of mother looking in the mirror. Yeah. If if there's a fire burning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, one of my examples, and it's hard to describe stills uh, in a podcast, but I'm going to try. Um, Baltasar Kormakor, great Icelandic filmmaker, really muscular filmmaking. He made a film called The Deep, and mm-hmm. he actually sank a boat twice and had his lead actor, and he's like, and Baltasar was in the ocean with him in this freezing cold waters, and then he had him crawling over lava fields. And when the film premiered at Toronto, the only steel available at that point was. Um, Two guys eating sandwiches. The sandwich wasn't even, you know, a special sandwich. And <laughs> it, it was just like, you know, Baltimore's a smart filmmaker, and I'm sure, you know, many of his other films have very iconic mm. images. But for whatever reason, and I think more stills came out after Toronto, but Toronto's the world premiere, and people are running reviews of a guy, a picture of a guy with a sandwich, and that doesn't, that doesn't so this help is, this, say this what that film is about. For those that will have listened to the first one, this, this all plays into a, the bit of forethought because you're going to need 
stills yeah. when you're marketing the film. Yeah, that, stills for... That doesn't... That, it's not even a question, is it, that you get, are we not or are we? You're going to yeah. need them. You have to have them. You have to have... You know, you should think about what kind of stills look good on a poster, which stills look good on a social media post, which kind of stills might look good on a billboard. Um, what stills also, on the flip side, are going to look good on that Netflix homepage, you know, where it's a teeny tiny postage stamp size something that's going to represent your film. And if it's a more appealing, more people are going to click on it. Mm. So, there's something that's always fascinated me when I'm at the festival. Um, and I often see you Uh-oh. trying to... Ca- no, it's... <laughs> I have to see Don't you bring up the pet chasing, and majestic. You know. <laughs> no, not at all. Chasing, chasing the news story, or, or obviously mm. buried under a, a load of news. Mm. So, how how does the the dailies work at, yeah. at a festival? So, yeah, just to explain for people who don't know that, um, quite a few of the trades have print dailies. Still, yes, people want print, especially mm. I think when we're running around a festival. Um, and those are, you know, you've got a full newspaper operation going on you know, in situ, all the journalists are there. You know, in one daily, you could have 50 or 60 stories coming in, jockeying for a place. And, you know, it's about what we think is most exciting that day. It cha- I mean, it's mental to edit those things, as you mm. can imagine, because, you know, in the best case scenario, you've got the perfect front page at 3 p.m. And then somebody calls, oh, we just bought this film. And you want that news. And so you have to sort of change the whole page, maybe change some other pages that have hopefully not gone to the printers yet. Um, all the trades are trying to sort of outscoop each other. It's, especially those, I don't think you would really see, ever see a, mm. a story on the front page of a screen daily at a festival that's not an exclusive. So that means, you know, the other competitors don't what have that it, story. Do you have a favorite scoop you had when you were editor? Anything that you were, oh, that, stuck, that sticks in your mind? Oh, goodness. Um, I think I blocked that all out. Uh, you know, I have a sort of in a <laughs> debrief zone from Cam Daly's pain. Um, I'm sure I could think of some later, but um, yeah. so then it's exciting. The adrenaline is going in those newsrooms, and it's, yeah, it's great. Now, you've given, you've given us a little bit of, but, but so then what's the trade? You, you've said in the general mm. conversations of what, what, what sort of ends up in the trade. So what, what, what is the trade? Trades, how do the trades work in terms of the filmmaker? Because obviously, y- your average filmmaker is going to be thinking in terms of their, you know, what are Empire going to think? What's The Guardian going to mm. write about me and, and, and the like? But obviously, the trades have an important role in terms of telling the, the story of your film as much yeah, as. Yeah, to any, the industry, especially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the healthy, the, you know, there are what I consider sort of four trades, and you might consider IndieWire. Mm. kind of a trade um as well and that's great that's five sort of publications that care about the business of film and then of course you've got film francais and blickpunkt and you know other trades that are uh in foreign language editions mm. um but yeah they they write reviews they write interviews they write about how films are financed they write about industry trends you know and i think it can be really valuable and you know as a sort of for a normal filmmaker it can be great if you get a, a trade review. It can help your film not just reach the Guardian readership audience who might go see it in a cinema in six months, but maybe you know Variety will review it in Toronto, and that helps you get a deal so that the Guardian will review it 
yeah, in so you, six months. Your distributor reads it in the in exactly. variety, and then yeah, you that's get where. And it's um, you know, a lot of super whip smart critics working mm. at the trades. Um, and yeah. So in that sense, then going back, going back on our kind of publicist point, then mm. it, it's it's worth understanding your public the potential publicist relationship with the trade yeah before you engage them isn't it yeah i think uh, well not just the trades but you know when you're looking for a publicist ask them you know first of all ask them what they thought about your film and why your film is special and why they want to work on it because if they don't have an answer to that how are they going to then spin it to a journalist you know okay you want somebody to say oh you know you're going to love this one that this one's really unique and um, yeah, ask them what they thought of your film first to see if you're kind of on the that same page. That sounds bleeding obvious, but it's so but right. But a lot of people don't no, do it's so it right. or are scared to ask. And, you know, also you can call out who's not seen it or mm. who said they watched it and they want to work on it. And maybe they sent that email to 200 people last night, you know. Because um, when these lineups get announced, yeah. you know, if Sundance lineup came out this week, you know, hundreds of films. Some publicists out there will be looking for every producer and just sending them a blind email saying, do you need a publicist for Sundance? Okay, okay. So yeah, I think be wary of. So people, there's a, yeah, you're right. So there's people who are looking for work. Yeah. And then there's people that want to celebrate your film with you, and yeah, and you want to find that person, don't exactly. you? Exactly. And you, yeah, and ask them what journalists do you know who you think might like the film, and that way you can tell if they actually know journalist tastes, because you know there are publicists out there. You know Charles McDonald will know what Peter Bradshaw is probably going to write about this film or that film mm. and you know they're both professionals and can talk about things like that but yeah you should be able to ask your publicist what journalists do you think are going to be into it do you know the journalists uh um you know maybe not if you're in toronto do you know the globe and mail journalists you know it's not just the trades do you know yeah feeling out who they have relationships with and also i would feel out you know <coughs> if you've got you know, how many films are going to be on their Sundance slate? If they've got 20 films on their Sundance slate, they are going to need eight people working. So who's actually going to be working? The boss might meet you mm. and say they love your film, and then the 22-year-old assistant is the one dealing with you day-to-day. That could be fine. That could be a really smart 22-year-old assistant. Yeah. But I think it's fair to know who's actually going to be working on it, how many other films they're working on. So moving moving into the twenty first century, um, what 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 should I be doing to deal with um, social media? Very good question because um, I think a lot of people sort of misunderstand how to use it or when to use it. Um, you know, I think it's also when you're going to be before you shoot your film. You know, talk with everybody, talk with the whole team about what we're gonna announce and when Mm. um is it going to be a totally social media free set or do you want your costume designer to put a snap on instagram saying look at this amazing fairy outfit we're using for fairy dust 2018 yeah um everybody sort of needs to agree on that strategy because if not so a collegiate approach is what you're saying yeah or you know just either lock it down or encourage it or mm. maybe say the director's going to do a blog. I mean, I don't know how many directors have time to do a blog when they're shooting. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's just a consistent approach. And I'm surprised. One of the things I'm surprised about is, is the lack of joined up. Mm. 
because when a film's out there and you're obviously trying to promote it, which is often mm. the reason I'm coming across it with the podcast, is people involved with the film don't react to it being who've got a social media presence yeah. don't seem to be interested in their own film, and I don't get it. No. And also, I mean, one thing to bring up, and people sometimes get shocked when I go through this, you know, you could have 10 different publicists working on the same film, and I'll explain, you know, you could have your unit publicist that was with you during the shoot. Mm -hmm. You could have a publicist from one of your funders, like the BFI has publicists. You, you know, could have a a publicist that's in Toronto working for the festival where you're going to have your launch. Mm. You, you know, you could have one of these publicists that you hire, either an agency or an independent. If you've, you know, say Curzon is going to release your film here, they'll have a publicist. Um, your production company might have its own publicist. Your sales company will have its own publicist. And then they might also have an outside publicist that they deal with. Um, the talents could have personal publicists. So I'm having a meltdown now. And no, I'm not it's, it's, that's, it's, that's intense. It's a lot. But, you know, the great thing is that's all people who have a vested interest in getting the word out about your film. But who's, who's producing, like, the core material, as in the written materials? You, you, we talked about the stills. So, okay, mm. let's, let's think we've got 50 great stills to share amongst that group of people. Mm. Who's preparing? Are they all, they're not all working that easily in tandem. No, I mean, I, th- I think it probably usually falls to the producer to sort of coordinate or make sure everybody's yeah. on the same page. Um, some productions have started having something called a pr- PMD, Producer of Marketing and Distribution. Okay, that's interesting. So they're the ones that are getting the assets. Makes sense. Make, making sure the synopsis is the same on all the websites. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, I mean, is such a smart thing to have. A lot of people haven't necessarily done it, but... Um, which is yes. when you've got multiple social media accounts, multiple individuals on social media yeah. accounts, sending out mixed messages, suddenly... Yeah. If if they only point them at the synopsis and the synopsis remains the same, then yeah. at least you've got the fighting chance that they'll read the right yeah. thing. I mean, even if, uh, you know, best case scenario, you've got Nick Cage starring in your film and he's going to tweet from his own account. But what if he calls your film a road movie in his tweet and you didn't really want to message it as a road movie? And that's sort of out there forever. Um, or if he's put up a picture of himself in the makeup chair and then I'm Screen International, and I don't have a picture of this film yet, but that's the only image out there, suddenly that could be used as your sort of official image, and that's not what you want either. So it's, yeah, it's a minefield. No, yeah, you're, you're, you're painting a picture that of I can scary. see how the, 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 the jumper gets unpulled quite quickly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... And, and the internet age with social media does suddenly puts the power in anyone's hands. Yeah, and it's sort of... You know, a, a tweet can mean as much as an article in screen. Yeah. You know, so I think that's where social media can get tricky. But, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of smart people just, I was on a set a couple of weeks ago and there was a note on the, the call sheet for the day, just a reminder, you know, no, no photos on set, no social media. Just a reminder, anybody who's visiting, anybody who's working on that crew knows that. And yeah, I've, 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 I've had it in Leavesden Studios yeah. where they just basically say, Nothing. You're going to get painted. Which, if I was, I do think that you're okay to be a control freak when you're making a film and you can lock all that stuff down and you decide yeah. if somebody's going to tweet something, you know about it in advance and you've kind of approved it because it's your film and, yeah, the image, you can't put the cat back in the bag. No, you can't. Yes. You can't. So, I've, I've, the publicist has got me lots of attention. 
the film's getting the film's had its world premiere mm. and we got we got a dozen journalists in and Congrats. eight of them gave us a bad review. What um, do I, what do I do now, Wendy? It's it's tough. <laughs> and I well I really you know, I've never made a film. I cannot imagine the pain of, you know, struggling for let's say ten years to make a film. And yeah. some will take longer than that. Mm. And, you know, 200 people have been involved in this film's journey. And then somebody watches it. For 90 minutes. For 90 minutes. <laughs> and then two hours later, there's a review up online saying, nah. Or 10 minutes good. later, there's a tweet that yeah, says. Yeah, there's a tweet that says, not from me. Um, and I can't imagine the pain of that. Um, but you, unless there's something factually wrong with that review, you have to just let it go and hope that there'll be other good ones in the future. And honestly, um, you know, I know that sounds kind of naive, but I mean, if there is a an error in the review saying, oh, this is set in Paris, but obviously it's shot in Prague and you shot in Paris, you can call up that journalist and say, OK, well, this is actually a factual error. But, you know, a review is one person's opinion. That's the only way they work. You mm. know, otherwise you can't trust them at all. And we need the industry <laughs> has to have some bad reviews because not every film made is great. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, I would think, you know, one bad review is not going to kill your film. Yeah, it's disappointing when you get lots of bad reviews, especially in sort of a hot health situation like at Sundance or Cannes. And it f will probably feel like the end of the world. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've seen films that didn't get great reviews in Cannes sort of have a second life once people are sort of mm. seeing them in normal life and in fresh air and you don't have to write a review in two hours. and. You know, it's not the end of the world. I think, yeah, a film can have another life or a sort of critical reassessment, maybe even years later, that it becomes a sort of cult classic and people are loving it and writing essays about how great it is. Um, Although Cannes did try to cut that off the past this year, didn't they, with, um, their, with their changing of the press screening schedules they, and the Yeah, like. they tried. I don't know how successful that whole change that seemed a bit weird. That, that did seem like the cow, the bag is, I'm sorry, but we have Twitter. Journalists yeah. will tweet. Yes. Because they're, they're not competing with anyone. Also, but not just journalists, but any person going into a screening in, in Cannes can tweet. Indeed. Yeah. You know, so if a film is a stinker, it's going to be known that it's a stinker five minutes after that screening. Mm. And yeah, you can delay the reviews for another two hours, but yeah. I suppose <laughs> the thing about bad reviews, and, and I can only speak from experience of, of albums, um, is that you still it, well? You'll still get good reviews. So, like in the example I gave, I was saying you get eight bad reviews, but you mm. get four good ones. Concentrate on the good ones. Pull those quotes on the poster. Yeah. If and the thing is, if you're gonna if you're gonna enjoy the good ones, then you have to be upset by the bad ones, or you ignore all of them and don't look at them at all. I mean, obviously, that's distributors, fair too. Distributors have got to look at them because they've got to see where they sit. Yeah. No, a filmmaker absolutely has no, you know, um, mandate that they have to read reviews and maybe that's better for some people um you know it is nice to think that filmmakers care about the sort of world of criticism mm. and you know discussing their work in a wider context you would hope that film a lot of filmmakers want to engage with that yeah but some you know egos are more easily damaged and yeah if it was me i don't know if i could read a review of my mm. film and you don't have to. If they're, they're that painful, you don't have to read it. Some of your te team around you can read it and deal with it as needed. And I mean, is that is that, is that, I've never really understood the difference between the sort of the festival reaction review 
and the review. So, like, you know, Peter Bradshaw will do a festival review and then he'll, he'll review the same film again, almost like as if he's... Yeah. Forgotten. Yeah, yeah, as if he's not seen it. Um, I, I really don't understand that practice. Um, or I also don't understand the same paper giving... I mean, I get, well, it's the same thing, I guess. You know, they give a film three stars and then six months later it's got four or five stars. The film hasn't changed. Mm. I find that really bizarre from the same publication. You know, Screen doesn't review a film twice. You get your review, you know, at Sundance, and then if your film opens or it's going to be in the Oscar race and we might rerun a review for another festival or something, but it's the same review. The film hasn't changed. If the film does change, you know, I think they could go back and update the review or write a second review. I mean, something like You Were Never Really Here. I don't think Screen re-reviewed it um, after Len Ramsey changed that film not mm. hugely significantly but probably enough you know enough to be noticed yeah and i think some critics did or you know they might review a director's cut of a lars von trier nymphomaniac compared to the original cut okay, okay, or yeah. so that's, so that's fair enough but i yeah it drives me crazy to see the same publication and especially if it's the same critic i just don't get it you know or take the other one down like which one do you think if one's three star and one's four star, <laughs> you have to decide now which review. What is this film? Yeah, what is your star rating? Make a choice. Yeah. So, uh, final question, then, just as as we're at the uh, the end of the calendar year, what what for you has been your your cinema highlights? Have you got a couple of films that at the end of two thousand eighteen you'd say to people, make sure try and hunt them out, or I do. Um... Go on, Wendy. Play t- pray tell. Well, I was lucky enough to see a film called The Guilty before it went to Sundance because I know the director and the producer. First time, mm-hmm. director Gustav Moller, uh, producer Lena Flint, a uh, film coming out of Denmark, mm-hmm. low budget, came out of a new sort of new talent, low budget scheme. Just a stunning, stunning piece of work. Just the craft of it, the storytelling style, the actual script, the performance just blew me away. And but. It's weird seeing a film like that in a vacuum because I didn't have anybody to talk about it with. I wasn't even at Sundance, so I couldn't even see people who had seen it there and say, God, did that blow your mind too? But I remember thinking, like, that's going to be one of my top 10 films mm. of the year. And I'm really pleased to say, 11 months later, gosh, you know, and, you know, I did see it on a big screen eventually. And it is such a cinematic experience. The sound design, um, and, you know, that just really excites me to see something that feels new, mm. also quite audience-friendly. It's one of a lot of... It won the Audience Prize World Cinema at Sundance, and it won Audience Prize in Rotterdam, and I think a few other festivals. So audiences just love this film, but it's also super smart. Um, I'm going to mention another Scandi film. Cool. I do write a lot about Nordic cinema, if you're wondering, um, which would be Border, Ali Abbasi's... Uh, I'm dying to see this. Yeah, it's um, a.k.a. the troll sex film, if we're going <laughs> to boil it down to cheap. Uh, this film, you know, on paper sounds like such a mess. It, oh, is this going to work? And you think, are the Scandies going to be able to pull off the level mm. of the, the VFX to make it look like a big budget Hollywood thing? And, you know, I even talked to Ali before I saw the film in Cannes, and, you know, he was saying, I think it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I saw it, it's just... It, blew my mind and just sort of crazy is it a film you've been following from script 
sort of thing in development? Is it something you... Yeah, I knew about this film because I go to a lot of the Scandi festivals where they talk a lot about films coming up in production yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. things like that. Um, I don't think I had seen a clip. I had seen his first film called Shelley in Berlin, but this is a whole other level. It's just such... The performances, the makeup, mm. just also this really quite weird story about... But all quite weird, but ultimately, you know, I cried at this film. It was so moving, but yet it is kind of about trolls. Mm. Um, you know, I read a piece in the New Yorker today saying, "Just go see this film. Don't read anything about it first. Um, so I hope I didn't spoil anything. But that's a phenomenal piece of work. Mm. Um, and then you know, something like Roma. I saw on a big screen. I was really lucky to be able to see that on a big screen in Dolby Atmos. Mm. Um, and yeah, such a personal piece of filmmaking, but also, you know, sort of universal themes and felt like a story we haven't quite seen mm. before. And just, you know, there's so many inspiring films being released. And I think that's one thing to also say, journalists, much like filmmakers, nobody's getting rich being a film journalist. You hope that people are doing it because they really love films. They love filmmakers. It's exciting to talk to filmmakers and learn how films are made. And, you know, 25 years after I started doing this, I still feel that. I get excited talking to It's weird, isn't it? Discovery, discovery of something is still exciting. It never, yeah. you never, You never don't want this to be great. Yeah. You? And, you know, some journalists are overworked, underpaid, stressed out, trying to cover too many films. Yeah. You can get cranky some days. But ultimately, you know, a lot, most journalists are there. You know, you're, of course you're covering the news and sometimes there's bad news to report on in the trades and you know mm. we're not quite Woodward and Bernstein but you know if company shuts down we have to cover that too mm. but we love writing about the happy stuff as well um I've just going back to what some of the things we were talking about in the, the first podcast it's just when you're working with a festival mm. are you are you working with the programs on that are you sort of looking for films to recommend or looking for films to them to take notice of and in that sense, how how different is it watching a film with that in mind than just watching a film to be enthralled by? Yeah, with sort of the scout hat I have, mm. um, I mean, it's quite, it has to be quite clear that I'm not the one programming. Right. Like in San Sebastian, I scout the Nordic films for them. Yeah. Um, it it kind of just means I make sure they're watching the... Yeah. Everything that's on that should be on their radar, yeah. they will watch. Yeah. Um, I try to, as much as I can, I try to watch just to see. But yeah, it is different than am, am I just enjoying this? I'm thinking, is this going to play in that 1,000 seat cinema with a Spanish audience? What part of the program could they put this in? Is this already really similar to another film I know they've got? Or, you know, they're not going to play six Danish films in San Sebastian in any given year. Mm. So, you know, which of the, these Danish films do I think they'll like better? And I, you know, I might send them a few notes to the programming team. Um, I was lucky. I got to see a Norwegian film called Blind Spot by Tuva Novotny. And, you know, they sent me the link the same time they sent it to the San Sebastian programming team, which was very kind that I could watch it at the same time. And I, again, was just like, oh, my gosh, I think this is a masterpiece. Am <laughs> I, have I drank too much tea or is this really a masterpiece? Um, and luckily enough, I was, uh, the San Sebastian guys were in London that week. And I saw Luthia, who's the deputy head of the festival. And she says, I had sent her an email that morning saying, I think this is a masterpiece. And she, I saw her an hour later and she's like, I watched an hour so far. And 
and I think it's a masterpiece too. And you know, it, it's so refreshing to everybody get excited about a film. See, that's good to hear. I think any film I can listen to that is like you've just got to aim for that standard where you make a good film. That's your only concern. And but the thing is, if you do, that's the kind of reaction. People get excited, and they yeah. ended up putting it's a debut feature, and they ended up putting it in their main competition, and it won the best actress prize. And you know, the whole programming team—it's not just Luthia. Um, the whole programming team thought this film was an amazing yeah. accomplishment. It's one of those one-take. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but wow, yeah, and that's so exciting. But yeah, I probably watched that slightly differently than if I was just just a journalist that's going to interview the director. Mm. Um, maybe even letting myself become a little bit more excited about it and not having to be like a detached journalist because um, i'm not a critic so i i don't write reviews um never really have much you know dabbled here and there but never for screen yeah. or anybody um which i quite like that distinction um because no, I, I think being I, a critic's really hard and if you're reporting on the industry it's hard to then you know slag off somebody's film and then ask them for a news story or yeah because you know. i i think there's a there's a there's a balance to be had where i know some critics don't like being filmmakers' friends because they don't think it's it or, or don't feel they have to be their friends. Or if they are, that doesn't guarantee you a re- review either. So no, it's like, it can be quite tricky. Being yeah, I feel horrible if I. Yeah. To. Whereas I think with me as a sort of reporter or you know feature interviewer, mm. yeah, I can be friends with mm. filmmakers. You know, uh, yeah, it might get weird if I have to write about their company shutting down or something, but yeah, that can kind of happen. But yeah, I think it it probably is really hard to be a critic and. Ha- you know, and be truly a, a real friend of a filmmaker and you don't like their work and you're going to have to say that in a it's public a conversation forum. you must have to have before you watch it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you hope or maybe you try to never speak of it in person. Or well, something. look, Wendy, thank you very much for uh, giving us the insight there on uh, the filmmaker and the press. Great. Thank you. And to filmmakers listening, don't be afraid of the press. And also, I should, I, as we've done social media, um, how can how can people are you are you on Twitter social media or anything? Like that? I have a Twitter account at Indie Wendy that okay. I'm not quite active on, but thinking of getting more active. Um, I have a website called FilmWendy.com where okay. I do an occasional blog, and yeah, you can see who I write for and see some recent articles if anybody wants that nonsense. Brilliant. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. 
It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.